People self-swindled one day, one decision, one degree at a time. We're going to be going there today. Um, I'm taking a bit of a non-typical approach to uh, how we're going about our text today. And I say that as I want to actually begin with the closing application points. I want to begin with the closing application points. I'm going to kind of then leave them up on the side screens throughout our time in God's Word. And uh, so that's just not normal here, okay? So I want to let you know, and here's how this morning is going to go. We're going to take about 10 to do that. And then we're going to take 10 to kind of do a review of chapters 1 leading up through chapter 8. And then we're going to take about 15 in the final verses of chapter 8. And then, uh, Lord willing, the Spirit of God is going to land that plane. Okay? And uh, that's kind of our plan for today. Uh, so I want to begin with our closing application points. With me? Okay, closing application points. And three key life truths that we must keep before us. So three, how many? Three key, key life truths that we need to keep before ourselves. Here's life truth number one. We were created to worship. We were created to worship. Worship means to exalt, to, to, to praise, to adore, to give glory to. And by the way, that's uh, referencing the past, the present, and the future. In fact, Genesis 1 talks about in creation past where the Godhead creates everything and steps back, takes a look at it, and is like, this is awesome. And yet in it to Adam and Eve, kind of the pinnacle point of creation, he's like, and I want more. I want more like you. I want more of that Adam and Eve, more of the glory that you uniquely bring created in my image for this. I want more glory. It started that way. And by the way, it continues that way. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And whatever you do, do all to the glory of the Lord. By the way, that means that everything this morning was to be about the glory of the Lord. That means that right now, this time is to be about the glory of the Lord. By the way, when we leave here and we head out into the day today, it's about the glory of the Lord. And when you wake up tomorrow, what's tomorrow supposed to be about? Oh yeah, and then on Tuesday and Wednesday and all next week and all this coming month, until we see the Lord return, that's what we're shooting for, okay? That everything is about the glory of the Lord. Man, is that not a huge uh, challenge to hit, isn't it? Uh, but also, it's also in the future is about the glory of Lord. Revelation 22, verses three and four, I'll read them. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed in the eternal state, in the eternal heaven, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and their name will be on their foreheads. Hey, friends, we were created to worship and to give glory. By the way, uh, I'm just going to build on that. Anthropologists see that. In fact, anthropologists who, who are not even uh, redeemed in Christ or who maybe even atheistic anthropologists uh, note this about the reality of humanity across the globe. When they study humanity, they realize that mankind exalts, praises, gives glory to worship something. In fact, here's a list I came up with. They worship something or someone like the stars or the planets or the sun or the earth or forces or concepts or powers or science or animals or trees or plants or places 
Uh, mankind worships ancestors, spiritual leaders, saints, the Pope, the Dalai Lama, the list goes on there. Or money, cars, houses, popularity, power, image, prestige, or angels, Satan, Allah, Buddha, uh, Confucius, Baal, uh, small g gods and goddesses, and the list goes on there. Or religious systems like Hinduism, Sikhism, Scientology, Taoism, atheism, witchcraft, voodooism, pantheism, theism, universalism, agnosticism. The fact of anthropology is... No one worships nothing. Everyone worships, idolizes, exalts something. Even if you're here today and you're like, you know, this whole Bible Jesus thing, I'm just here because I have to be here. Uh, I want for you to know you also worship something. Uh, We do. We were created to worship. We were created to worship, therefore my heart is a worship center. We were created to worship, therefore my heart is a worship center. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Jesus said in Matthew 22.37, he said to the Pharisee lawyers, sorry lawyers, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. We were created to worship, therefore my heart is a worship center. Life truth number two, we are skilled self-swindlers. We are skilled self-swindlers. It happened from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter three. Satan comes after Adam and Eve to swindle them, and here's the thing, he swindles them that they would self-swindle themselves. That, That was the whole approach. Uh, he's a, Satan is a swindler, but the fact of the matter is, is they, uh, they self-swindled themselves. The best example, I think, of this whole we are self-swindlers is actually Romans 7, verses 15 and 19. Paul says of himself, by the way, the apostle Paul says of himself, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You, you, know, you know about that? And he says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Therefore, my heart is a schizophrenic worship center. We are skilled self-swindlers. Our hearts are schizophrenic worship centers. This is true. Luke 6.45, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How is it that we can speak words of encouragement and kindness and love in one moment? And then lickety-split, or a period of time later, out of the exact same mouth, we can speak words that are so hurting, so cutting, so vicious, so mean, so cruel, words to murder. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Haven't you ever wondered that? Well, here it is. The text says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you exalt, you worship, you want something, and you do not have it, so you fight and you quarrel to get it. That's that's a schizophrenic worship center. That's my heart. And by the way, sorry to say this, but that's yours also. That's yours also. 
Uh, life truth number three. We live in a spiritual war. We live in a spiritual war. Revelation 6 through 19, when we went through that, especially chapter 12, we live in the spiritual war. We are in the war zone of that. By the way, add Ephesians chapter 6, where it tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. By the way, armor. Armor is not for golfing. Armor is not for playing uh, cards. Armor's not for having a great time together. No one wears armor to a picnic. You wear armor to go to war. And therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to withstand and stand firm. We live in a spiritual war. Therefore, every day is about a war for my worship. Every day, every moment is about a war for your worship. Every moment. Joshua 24, 15, uh, right before the book of Judges, Joshua at the close of the book, he says, choose this day who you will serve. By the way, it's really important to understand this idea because it's not just choose and then it's done. It's, it's this, choose who you will begin choosing. Choose who you will be a chooser of. Choose who you will place yourself under so that you will continue to choose and choose and choose and choose and choose. Okay? That, that's the idea. It's not a one thing and done. It's a decision to enter into a process of continued choosing. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That contains a present, active, continuous kind of a verbiage in there. That means all the time, all the time, all the time. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death what is earthly in you, and then gives examples of that. By the way, put to death is not one time. It's this, it's, 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 it's every moment that we are at a challenge to, to who we are going to worship when we come into the reality of sin and the opportunity for anger, the opportunity for lust, the opportunity to be critical, the opportunity to be whatever. At that moment, putting it to death. And here's the thing. What we're going to see today, we so yearn just to like get her done and kick it on, right? Oh, I do. But that's not the way wars are. When you're in a war, you are warring until the war is done. And until the war is done, and until we see Jesus face to face, we are warring in the war. In Philippians 3, but whatever was to my prophet, Paul says, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've given up all things, that I might know him. Not that I've already obtained all this, but I press on to take hold of that of which Christ has given me, to know him, that I want to be. Oh, Every day is a war for our worship. Well, we are created to worship. We are skilled self-swindlers. We live in a spiritual war. And subpoints with that. My heart is a worship center. My heart is a schizophrenic worship center. Every day is a war for my worship. Now, with that on the table, um, I'm, I, I want to suggest this. I want to suggest that the book of Judges is this. 
lived out in people that we can see and read about. This is what has been happening through the book of Judges. We've been seeing this, this created to worship and yet self-swindling themselves in the war that they live in. And it's a 400 period, year period of time and, and we're, we, we are seeing more and more. It's, it's one day, one decision, one degree at a time that we become not either, we choose to either be glory givers of the Lord or glory takers from the Lord. And uh, that's the three truths uh, up on the screens. We're going to leave them there. Now a review of the book of Judges. Turn to chapter one in the book of Judges, all right? Turn to Judges chapter one. And I'm just going to do a skim over here. Pretty close to time. (laughs) Time is the pastor's curse. Okay, here we go. Chapter one. As you look at chapter one, what is chapter one is about? Chapter one is a big picture summary map. It is a big picture summary map of the promised land conquest. Uh, You turn to the left and you see the book of Joshua. What happens after Joshua is the question. That's what chapter one answers. Well, here's what happens because they were entering in to take over the promised land. And now it updates you on what the map is looking like in the promised land at the start of and through the book of Judges. Chapter two is about the big summary of the heart of God's promised land people, let's call them. In that, it's giving the, a summary of who they are, and it's it's a sad summary, frankly, and and we're seeing that as it continues. So uh, that's the opening. Uh, chapter one is the map. Chapter two is a summary of their heart of what's going on, and then the rest of Judges really is breaking into telling us about the time of it. By the way, all of these individual stories that are comprising the telling of the summary are not end-to-end consecutive, okay? Don't think of that way. It's not like 80 years, then 40 years, then 7 years, then this year, then this, end-to-end-to-end. Many of them are overlapping. It's not, its goal is not a consecutive telling. It's a selective telling of things that are going, and it's oriented in these overlapping accounts by these uh, key judge heroes that God raised up. Okay, now uh, I've been using some, some life movie superhero images, uh, one, to have a little fun uh, as we go through each of these, because each of these, like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah, are being brought and kind of oriented around these key judges, these key leaders. And, and I'm also trying to use uh, these images as a reminders uh, of it. I mean, isn't it true? Just think of it, even with what you know right now. Uh, Samson. Boy, seems a lot like the Hulk. True? Yeah, yeah. Okay, why am I doing a lot to clarify something here in all this? I'm trying to have some fun. I'm trying to also uh, use images, but I, I'm telling you, some of us older ones, I'm trying to get the scripture, which my goal is to have people fall in love with God's word again, is to have the characters in God's word Get off the flannel graph. Flannel graphs are great, but, but, but they seem like these cartoon emoji characters, okay? And yet they're real people. But Doug, Avengers aren't real if someone hasn't told you that. Yes, they are. <laughs> okay, but I'm trying to bring them 3D and, and bring that to some life, okay? So, so work with me on that. And uh, I mean, maybe Othniel is Captain America. He's kind of like one of the best uh, of the judges in there. And uh, okay, I won't go any further with all that. 
But in it all, know this, it is not about the judges ultimately. Ultimately, all of this is about the Lord of the judges, okay? So we don't superhero them, but we understand that this is all about who the Lord is. He is sovereign, he is warrior, he is pursuer, he is faithful even when his people are not faithful to him. And that's what is being unleashed through the rest of the book. So chapter one is a summary of the map. Chapter two is a summary of the heart. Go to chapter three, look at verse seven real quickly. God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, the Lord hands them over for their discipline, ultimately to drive them back to him. Othniel is raised up and he leads the destruction of the king of Mesopotamia and then the land has rest for 40 years. Then verse 12, again God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and again the Lord hands them over for discipline to draw them back to him. He's like, no, 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 don't go there. Apparently I have to bring hurt upon you to have you realize you have to come back. Return to open arms. Uh, kind of a thing. And so Ehud shows up, the assassin, and he's raised up. And remember that? He kills big King Eglon uh, of Moab, and the land has rest for 80 years. And uh, the Shamgar, the uh, verse 31, the one verse guy, he, the Shamgar, the ox goat warrior, killed 600 Philistines, and, and it says he also saved Israel. Then we're in chapter 4. So, so far we have three examples of what is, we are told about in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 4, again, God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, the Lord hands them over to discipline. This first, it just keeps repeat over. Deborah, the prophetess, the wife and the judges we're told about in chapter 4 is raised up. She summons Barak, the commander and God's people, to defeat the king of Canaan and the commander Sisera of the king of Canaan. And they do by God's hand. And in chapter 5, they sing it out. That was last Sunday. They sing it out. They sing the victories in HD and they sing them vertical. And then at the end of chapter five, the land had rest for 40 years. Then Pastor Cody, or I'd actually covered the beginning of chapter six. Again, God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gives them over to the Midianites again uh, for seven years. The Lord sends an unnamed prophet because now this time they didn't need a deliverer right now. They needed a word. Because it's like, I've been doing this again and again and again, and you're still not getting it. And so he gives a word, and then Pastor Cody picked it up for there for two Sundays. And the angel of the Lord shows up and tells Gideon, Gideon, the Lord is with you. Gideon needs some convincing on that, and he, then he becomes convinced, and and then uh, pulls down the Baal altar and the Asherah pole with 10 of his buddies in his hometown, Ophrah. Don't forget that. In his hometown, Ophrah. That's where his ministry gets started. Then the Midianites and the Amalekites, they aren't so happy about that having happened. And so they go to war against God's people. And the Lord lets Gideon know of this. And Gideon blows the trumpet to gather all of the Israelites together. And, and yet in it, Gideon needs a fleece sign to confirm that God will save Israel by Gideon's hand. Uh, he's struggling with trusting in the Lord for sure. And yet God is gracious and he gets that. Then we're in chapter 7. Uh, 32,000 gather after the trumpet call of Gideon beside the spring of Herod. And look at chapter 7, verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Listen, there were 32,000, as Pastor Cody said, the Midianites had 120,000. And 32,000 against 120,000, the Lord says, that's too many. Why? That's too many for me to give 
the Midianites into their hand. Who's giving the Midianites into God's people's hand? The Lord is. And then he says, lest Israel boast over me. By the way, what that means is, lest Israel claim glory over me. Our hearts are a worship center and the Lord knows that we self-swindle our own hearts and even when we see the Lord at work we subtly or boldly take the glory for it and think somehow I did it, we did it and the Lord did it. And here the Lord is saying, I get how you guys work. I know how the thing goes. I understand with that. And so I'm going to help you. I'm going to have you noodle it down. And the text says, so that you will see that and say that my own hand saved me. You, I'm sorry, that you will not say that. So I'm going to whittle it down. So the Lord says, uh, whoever is fearful and trembling, go home. 22,000 go home. 10,000 are too many. The Lord told him to drink out of the river. So 9,700 drink like a dog and lap it up. And he says, you go home. And then 300 are left. There's a good odds. 300 against 120,000. Long story short, chapter 7, verse 20. The 300 blow their trumpets. Verse 22, chaos ensues and the Minyites flee. And they flee killing themselves. And God's people are standing around watching it. What a bunch of mighty warriors. Because God showed up. Chapter 8, Gideon's army pursues the fleeing Midianites, led by their kings, Z and Z. It sounds like a rap group, doesn't it? Israelites capture Z and Z and uh, the two kings. In chapter 8, verse 21, Gideon kills them and takes their crescent ornaments from their camels and victory. Very cool. That's where the story ended. We're going to pick up there. By the way, the story ended with Gideon killing these wicked kings. And I would think that a great way to finish out chapter 8 would be how Deborah and Barak finished chapter 4. And that would be to see the details in HD and sing it vertical. I would think that would be an awesome way now for Gideon and his people to handle it. But we are self-swindlers and we have schizophrenic hearts and we wrestle with whom we worship. So don't assume just because Gideon's a pretty cool guy that he's on track. I wonder how he's going to handle this. By the way, Pastor Cody had made mention in chapter 6 and 7 that Gideon, though fearful and hesitant when called upon in the beginning time of his life, he was a man on God's mission, but then some things began to change. There's already a couple things in chapter 8 that showed up. He talked about how it seemed like Gideon seemed like he was a little less and less concerned about God's presence in it. And then he talked about how it seemed like Gideon became a little bit reckless in what he was doing. And he noted also that it seemed like Gideon became a little bit ruthless with his own men and some of the things going on. I, I wonder what's going to happen a degree at a time. Is Gideon coming back? Lord, help us to get these final verses here in just these short moments that we have. With all of that laid on the table, help us to see you in spite of our self-swindling hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let me pick up. Chapter 8, 
Let me read middle of verse 21. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, the, the Z and Z. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, Gideon, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. We read that, and I think we can understand the request. I mean, my goodness, these, these, these marvelous victories have just taken place. And it's like, hey, hey, uh, Gideon, will, will, will you, as a, as a sign of gratitude, will, will, will you do that? After all, Gideon just saved them from the hand of the Midianites, they say. But a good idea doesn't mean it's always a right idea, right? Good idea doesn't necessarily mean it's the right idea. A good idea doesn't necessarily mean it's a glory-giving idea because some good ideas can be glory-taking ideas. By the way, they already had a king. They already had a king. They had a perfect king. They had a sovereign king. They had a warrior king. They had a God who had come, and with 300 men, God took 120,000 out while the 300 stood and watched. God won. Their king won the victory. And yet in it, the, the, the king somehow in this, I understand it, I understand it. This would never happen to us, would it? Like we have a sovereign warrior king, but, but that's not quite enough. We, we, we need someone else to kind of be king, someone else to bring things in order. Um, we would never do that, would we? No. Yes. So I wonder how Gideon's going to respond, because frankly, this is, a, this is a key moment here, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Booyah, dude. Way to go. That is exactly right. I mean, Gideon is so spot on here. By the way, it's spot on with what God had said in chapter 7, verse 2. That's too many, because I know what will happen is is you you will take it and you will think, we won the war. And so I'm going to narrow it down, down, and yet Gideon's bringing it right back to what the word said. A family monarchy was not God's plan at this time. The plan was for them to be glory givers to their king. And Gideon, dude, way to go, brought him right back on with that. And and I don't get hard on these people. I get it. And sometimes we need someone to speak the truth. And it's like, oh, that's right. We already have a king who oversees the affairs of the world and the affairs of this country. We already have a king. There is no man, there is no woman in the right spot who is over the king, by the way. We have a king. Chill out. He's got it. We have a king, verse 24. Oh, this is looking good, isn't it? But, verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. Uh, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Oh, okay. Um, question, where does this request come from? Uh, who is it, who's the source? Why is he asking this question of them? I mean, did the Lord ask Gideon to do it? Uh, frankly, he, he, maybe he did at this point. 
We don't know that. I do want to note something, though. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request. Gideon does not say the Lord has requested. I, I just, I'm not, listen, as a leader, I'm so not pummeling on this guy. Um, let's give him the, the, the break here. Let's see what happens. Verse 25, and they answered, we will willingly give those spoils. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he had crested was uh, 1,700 shekels of gold. Oh, but that wasn't all. Beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. This is really interesting. So here's what happens is in this request, some 43 pounds of gold is put out on this. This is nowadays terms of three quarters to a million dollars worth all chunked in on this, this deal. By the way, that wasn't all. There were many symbols of kingly royalty. Things like the crescent ornaments and the pendants. Those weren't just for the normal warrior person that they pulled off. These were uh, uh, crown things. Uh, uh, these were kingly things. The, these were dynasty things. And they put in the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And the collars worn around the camels of the necks that carried the royalty. Just keep it in mind. I'm not jumping on the boy at this point. But I know where it goes. <laughs> Verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it. And put it in his city in Ophrah. Remember that? We, we just read about that kind of in the overview. Interesting. Gideon made an ephod. Why? Why, why, why did he make an ephod? What, what is an ephod? An ephod is the, the ornamental, very expensive uh, a chest vest piece that the high priest of Israel wore. It had the, the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. It had the Urim and the Thummim, the, the two dice that they would use in that time, times to determine God's will in that. The, the, the ephod that was worn was also, it was made by the high priest, the Levite. Some things aren't adding up here. Why is he making an ephod? Why is he placing it in his backyard? Because I would think if you would want to take something like that and make a representation of, uh, for people to remember what the Lord has done, wouldn't you think, number one, you would understand, which he understood. He understood how Nephod was and what it represented, uh, that the person who wore that was the one who represented all of Israel, and yet in it all, it was in this thing where they would bring it and they would put it up, and wouldn't you think that a better place would be like at Shiloh or Bethel during the time to where the tabernacle and the ark would be? I mean, put it, at least put it somewhere where it's right by where the Shekinah glory of God is. But he's putting it in his backyard, essentially. Oh, Gideon. And by the way, did the ephod take 43 pounds of gold? No. Did it take all the purple garments? Weren't probably some. Some of the ornaments and some of the collars worn around the camel's neck, the bling on the, the camels in their cars, uh, literally, if you will, during that day. Oh, Gideon. 
And why in your own town? Oh, by the way. And why in the spot where you took down the Baal pole and the Asher, the Baal god worship Asherah pole? Now, maybe in your mind, let's replace it with what God has done. But oh, friend, oh, friend, the decisions are concerning. Verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it. He made it. And put it in his city in Ophrah. And, and, and oh my. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. It became a snare to God's people. They hoard after it. That, that's what uh, the summary in Judges chapter 2 talks about. The ephod became this prestigious, glory-taking item in Israel. It not only was a snare to God's people, it was a snare, as the text says, to Gideon himself. It doesn't tell us the details of what that is. But obviously in this, there is a snare going on in Gideon himself. And then the text tells us there was a snare for his own family. One degree plus one degree plus one degree plus one degree. This was not a jump off a cliff. This was a subtle move. A decision at a time. A day at a time. By the way, in aviation and navigation... There's the 160 rule. One degree traveled for 60 miles leads off one mile. Now I'll say this, off one mile by boat or by plane is not a big adjustment. Just come back. Come back. Come back. Just come back. Back on course. But one degree plus one degree plus one degree plus one degree moved over a period of time. It's way off course. But still, come back. Oh, come back. The book of Judges is the story of a people who did not come back and then come back again and again and again and again. Hey friends, the walk with Jesus Christ is come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, and keep on going. Come back. Back on course. Why? Because we have self-swindling hearts, and every moment of every day is a war for our worship. And every day we're off course. Come back. Just come back. Listen, the Lord loves it when his people come back. In fact, he loves it so much that the book of Judges is telling us the story about God putting them in discipline again and again and again. Why? That they would just come back. That is so much harder. Come back. Just come back. Verse 28, 
kind of closing out the section. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. There's some of that that is mystifying to me. Just the final verses here. Bit of a transition. Verse 29 kind of prepares us for, and to the end of the chapter, prepares us for chapter 9. Let me just read it. Uh, Jerobel, Jerubabel, depends how you want to call it. J, the son of Joash. Who is that? That's Gideon. It's chapter 6, verse 32. It's chapter 7, verse 1. This is the Canaanite name for, for Gideon. In fact, this is the name that Gideon's father gave him when Gideon's father was ticked off that Gideon took down the Baal and the Asherah pole. There's, I think, both a grammatical, kind of almost like a new starting point here, but also the writer is using the Canaanite name reference to to, to Gideon right here, and and he's almost looking more like a Canaanite than he is an Israelite. And he went and he lived in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons. Oh, my word. It doesn't say anything about the daughters, and there's a reason for that in the flow of the text. That's a lot of kids. One day, one decision, one degree at a time, and you got 140 kids. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, and he had many wives. Dude, this is so not what Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 talks about. This is not the model of kingship, my friend. Verse 31, and his concubine who was in Shechem, likely that's referring she lived there and he would go visit her. (laughs) This is weird. And she was likely a Canaanite. That's probably a big problem. And also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. That's the big deal about that. Because the name Abimelech means my father is king. Means my father is king or, or, or referencing uh, this idea that uh, the king is father. Who names their kid my father is king? If you are not thinking, I am king. Oh, but he said, don't make me king for the Lord rules over you. Words are easy and words can be fully meant. And honestly, I'm just going to say, I think he fully meant it or he was already gone and playing it. But I think he fully meant it. But yet in it here, here he is in this and he's naming one of his Tons of kids from his tons of wives. And he's naming one of them. My father is king. Dude, you're off. You are off, my friend. You are off. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the uh, Abazarites. Verse 33. As soon as King, as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, whored after the Baals, and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them 
from the hand of all the enemies on every side. There's an aspect of HD victory in that, what the Lord did. Verse 35, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done in Israel. Isn't that interesting? By the way, Gideon is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 towards the end, right before Barak, and there's some parts of that I just don't get. But that's okay. The Lord does. Gideon did not finish well. He did not finish well. And by the way, in this period of time, in Gideon's day, God's people did not finish well. And by the way, it wasn't all Gideon's fault because every person has the choice on what they're going to do with the worship of their heart. And while Gideon didn't help it, everybody was responsible for their choices. By the way, I just note this. God's people didn't finish like the way God's people did at the end of Joshua. Do you remember if you were here for that series? Favorite slide of mine. And Joshua marching through and the book ends off that way. And and in it, and I think here it's kind of like, oh, that what came from that ended up to this. Why? Why did the men and the women in the time of the judges, uh, their forefathers and uh, foremothers, who were more imaged like this, why did they get from there to where they're at now as we're seeing through the book of Judges and especially here whoring after small g gods? I would just simply answer it this way. They lost sight of who the Lord is. They lost sight of who the Lord is. They lost sight of who the Lord is. And when you lose sight of who the Lord is, you lose sight of who you are. And when the Lord becomes small, you become big. When the Lord becomes big, you become small. And that's the war. Choose this day, this decision. In this degree, whom you will serve. I think the warning of the book of Judges is really clear, friends. Let's not be them. Sometimes it's just really wonderful to see sad stories. Because it just puts a, a charge within us to go, oh, not us, oh, not us. And I want to just take that and come back to our truths. Truths number one. Let's just highlight that here for a second. And, and we were created to worship. We were created to worship. You were created to worship. Our hearts are worship centers. Uh, that's what's so unique about us being created in the image of God. There is something unique in mankind. We are created to be glory givers and and yet we are in a war within our own hearts. Uh, I'll just say it this way. You don't need Satan on your back and this war. It's already within. And this war to be able to make my thing the thing for me to be a glory taker and a glory hoarder. And listen, we can be that in a moment and a glory giver in a moment. We have schizophrenic hearts. We do. The question is not, do you worship? The question is not, are you worshiping right now? At any moment, any place, any time. The question is, right now, who is at the forefront of your worship? 
What thing, what one is at the front of your worship? And friends, there's a biblical beginning point to being a redeemed worshiper of Jesus Christ. There's a begin, beginning point of that. Because of sin, you and I are not born uh, worshipers of Christ. Uh, the scriptures tell us that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 3 goes on and explains that on out. But listen, there is a point where, in it, where when we understand our sin and we understand who we are and we understand who the Lord is, something has to be done about that. And God's word says in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony that God has given eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And then John says in John 1, 12, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. There is a receiving moment. There is a start of the story of becoming a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Do you have a starting point story? Because you were not born with it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we were born as children of the enemy because of sin. Have you? By the way, don't swindle yourself. If you think, if you hope, you're in a bad place because the scripture says you can know. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're hoping, if you're wishing, if you're thinking, if it's, you're banking it because you grew up in a Christian family, listen, you're in a wrong place right now and you're self-swindling yourself. There is a starting point to being redeemed in Christ to being a worshiper of Christ. And if you don't have a starting point story, today's your day. It's time today. It's time today. Oh, by the way, but this is really context of this is talking about people are living in a continual reality of living as a redeemed worshiper of Christ. Oh, friend in Christ, don't swindle yourself. Because it's one day, one degree at a time. It's not about losing your salvation, but it is about staying in the glory of the Lord for his glory. Don't swindle yourself. Come back. We were created to worship. My heart is a worship center. Truth too, again, we are skilled self-swindlers. Therefore, my heart is a schizophrenic worship center. Listen, there is a self-swindler story in Romans 7 about Paul. There's a self-swindler story of the prodigal son. There's a self-swindler story. Of Gideon. And there's a self-swindling story that everyone in this room knows about in our very own hearts. In your heart, in my heart, in our heart. We see ourselves too often as king. Is Lord over all, is one in control. That is so foolish when we do that. And we do it all the time. But know this, he is king. He is king. He is the one who wears the crown. And the day-to-day -day struggle reality in after having chosen Christ as your savior is having to continue to give the crown to continue to reign under his reign. 
to live under that. And it's a struggle, isn't it? Isn't it a war? Oh, I'm so tired of it. Just being totally out on the table. I'm so tired of it. But one day, one day. So Pastor Doug, what do we do? Well, see truth number one, see truth number two, and also remember truth number three. We live in a war, but I want to live in Disney World. Totally I do. Don't you? Yeah. <sighs> Let's go to Disney World. Let's just all right now, everybody pack up. But we're not, we're in a war. Every day is about a war for my worship. Every day is a Colossians 3, 5. Every day is a Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. Easy to say, hard to live. One day, one decision. Life is made up a series of ongoing 10,000 daily decisions. One degree. Three truths that need to be billboarded. So where do we go? So many things we could talk about to finish. Things like Sometimes we just love doing talk while our world charges to hell. Sometimes we just like to be in our garages and our homes. Sometimes we just like to talk theology and not live it out. Another one, why are we surprised when leaders fail? Why are we surprised when people fail? Why are we surprised when we fail? Come back. Back on course. The Lord loves it when his people come back on course. Why are we surprised? Because life isn't happening the way that I think it should happen. Because I am king of my own heart. No. That's foolish talk. So I'm going to finish it this way and I need to. Maybe you've been self-swindling yourself about your salvation. Maybe you've been playing Jesus and Talking Jesus, thinking everything's fine and dandy with Jesus. And yet Matthew 7 comes to mind when Jesus says, Many will call me Lord. And I will say to them, I never knew you. Oh, don't self-swindle yourself. Hear me. Don't swindle yourself. Have you come to Christ and received him as your Savior? Have you seen your sin condition? And laid it before the cross and received Christ as your Savior. If you haven't done that and that doesn't show fruit of it, it's time. Don't be self-swindled with your salvation. And by the way, uh, those in Christ, do not be self-swindled with your relationship in Christ. I just want this today for us to know this. Just come back. Just come back. It should be throughout the day. 
of course, Lord, back on. I blew it with the kids. I blew it with work. I blew it with my thought life. I blew it with my mouth. Back, Lord, back on. Just come back, just come back. It's time, it's time. So as we close out, I'm just going to ask. See it in HD. And it's time to sing it vertical. And I'm just going to ask, maybe around the room today, there's people that just need to turn on their knees. And you just need to get it straight with the Lord. Maybe there's people today that just need to come up here and just kneel it down. There's nothing holy here. Trust me. I wish there was. Maybe there's people that just need to stand up and like last Sunday and do a Deborah and Barack in a public, in an inviting, even maybe in a verbal way. Why are we so afraid to do that? Here's why. Because of the pride in our own hearts. Because of what they will think. Who cares? It's what he thinks. It's what he wants. And he would love his people to just come back. Just come back. Prodigal son who owes the father's arms open wide. Come back, son. Come back, daughter. So the worship team would come. And I would just ask, now's the time. God, I pray just now the time. I don't know. I'm just going to leave it in your hands. I've been so burdened for me, for us, God. I just pray you do work right now. If that means people need to kneel, if that means people need to move, if that means people need to stand, if that means people need to do whatever before you, Lord, oh God, right now, not for our glory, not for my glory, not to end a sermon in a certain way, but God, for your glory, for your thing right now. Arms wide open. Our face is down before the king that is sovereign, loving over all, who welcomes all to the foot of the cross, God. Do a work among us right now, Lord. Just do a work in this room, I pray.